Well, we focused our time in Genesis last Sunday on the story of Adam and Eve's two eldest sons, Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain, as you remember, murdered Abel out of jealousy and hatred. And today we're going to to skip forward over chapter 5. If you look in your Bible, you'll notice that chapter 5 is primarily a genealogy. Uh, Now, the fact that I'm skipping over that chapter doesn't mean that it's not important or that it's not worth reading. It it certainly is. It simply means that when you're preaching through a 50-chapter book, you have to make some choices along the way. Uh, Now, it's worth uh, making note of the fact that there is uh, likely at least a a thousand-year gap between our, our sermon from last week and our sermon today. Uh, so we're making a huge jump forward in, in time. Uh, the, the time from uh, the most conservative estimates of the time from Adam and Eve's expulsion from the Garden of Eden to the birth of Noah uh, is about a thousand years. Uh, it's also worth understanding and maybe a little bit helpful uh, to recognize that the genealogies that we see in the scriptures are not uh, necessarily or always assumed to contain every step in the ladder. And you see this if you compare a couple of the genealogies. You'll see that there are at times uh, generations left out uh, of the genealogies. And so we handle them uh, carefully, uh, especially when we recognize that we view uh, family trees, as we like to call them, a little differently than they did in the ancient Near East. I'm not going to spend really any time today Uh, discussing that, other than uh, just to mention uh, so that we all know that there are theologically astute, uh, biblically sound scholars who take a number of positions on exactly how we should read these uh, genealogies and whether or not there may in fact be gaps or time spans uh, in them. Uh, Nonetheless, what we find is that Adam and Eve, of course, had more children uh, than just Cain and Abel. And one of their children uh, was Seth. Now, if you were to skip to Luke chapter 3, follow the genealogy that Luke provides us there, you would see that Seth is the son of Adam and Eve, uh, through whom Jesus would ultimately descend. Cain was sent away from the presence of God, and from him other civilizations, like the Canaanites, uh, sprung up. Uh, They were raised, most of them, uh, and lived their existence as, uh, generally speaking, pagans. Uh, No acknowledgement, no interest in the Lord. Uh, But the redemptive story that the scriptures will will follow uh, reveals to us uh, that, that the Savior, that Jesus Christ, would ultimately descend through the line of Seth. And, and we'll discover pretty quickly that even those who were not Uh, entirely cut off from the presence of the Lord, even those who uh, quote-unquote walked with the Lord would eventually wander and drift. Uh, And so I would invite you to stand as I read our sermon text for today uh, from Genesis chapter 6 starting in verse 1. And I remind you as I do uh, each week that this is God's word uh, to us. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, 
and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. God, we look around at our world and we very quickly realize that what your word says about us is true. We are immersed in brokenness and sin. Nothing in this world is as it should be. And Lord, as your word shines a light on our world, and more importantly, on our own hearts, we pray that you would lead us to the cross today in repentance. We're thankful for the promised sin-defeating Savior who died for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, our text today is, in many ways, a, a mirror. It's one of those passages in Scripture in which God uh, describes humanity. And in this particular text, he describes humanity uh, perhaps more specifically than anywhere else in the Scriptures. It's a passage that, uh, in many ways, cuts to the core. And I want to use uh, four words to guide and organize our time today. These words uh, encompass the message of this passage, and they're not words that are particularly encouraging. Uh, the four words that I'll share with you today are the words corruption, depravity, regret, and wrath. So buckle up. Uh, the first word that we find in our text is the word corruption. Uh, the first handful of verses in this chapter are among the most wildly debated that you will find in the scriptures. If you Google these verses, in fact, I would encourage you to this afternoon, uh, Google these verses and you'll find out what I mean. Uh, for example, in verse 2, uh, verse 2 of our text, it says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Or verse 4, the Nephilim 
were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. And so you might be justified in asking, what in the world does that mean? Uh, And that's a good question. Uh, Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of humans, as our translation says? And who are the Nephilim? Uh, And there have traditionally been uh, three ways, or three views, three theories, on how we make sense of this. And actually, all three of these theories, all three of these understandings, predate Jesus. Uh, So this was an area of controversy in Judaism. Uh, Before Jesus came, people were trying to figure out what these words of Moses meant in Genesis chapter 6. So let me give you just a a quick sort of 10,000 foot flyover of these three explanations uh, of what this passage means. Uh, Before I do, I want to make one clarification. Uh, Our translation Uh, refers to, quote, the daughters of humans. And so I just want to provide a little bit of clarity there. The word humans that's translated there is the Hebrew word Adam, uh, which you might assume is where we get the word, the name, Adam. Uh, It's a word that quite often in Scripture, when we see it, refers to humanity or mankind, all people. Uh, But So so it's a singular title uh, given to the whole collection of human beings, male and female. It used to be translated all the time as man, right? So you you would see that. Many of you grew up with that translation. We just use the word man, which is a little bit confusing because we don't know if it's males or if it's humanity. And so a lot of our translations uh, nowadays use uh, a word like mankind or humanity, or humans, uh, but it it gets a little bit confusing here, uh, and and you'll understand why when I share uh, this first theory uh, to explain what these verses mean. Uh, First of the three views is the wildest, Uh, and, and that's that some have argued that the phrase sons of God in verse two actually refers to angels. Uh, Likely some angels who fell at the great rebellion with Lucifer uh, who have come uh, in no uncertain terms to procreate with human beings. Uh, Now, if you've never heard this theory before, it might seem laughable at first, uh, but there are many serious leading Old Testament scholars uh, who uh, stand behind this explanation of the text. This isn't a new theory. This was discussed before Jesus uh, by, by, the Jewish, by the Hebrew people. Uh, there, there's a reference in Job 38, Job chapter 38, and actually uh, one or two at the beginning of Job as well, in which angels are referred to using this exact Hebrew phrase, sons of God, to refer to angels, which serves as uh, one of the primary motivations behind it. So, In this theory, the sons of God are angels. The Nephilim that are mentioned are potentially the offspring of an unlikely union between angels and humans. I told you to Google this. There's some fun stuff out there. Uh, That's theory number one. And there is actually a a pretty robust theological foundation for this theory. The second theory is a lot more tame. 
uh, and that's that uh, the sons of God and the Nephilim in our text are used sort of interchangeably. And they refer to uh, powerful foreign rulers and warriors uh, who found the women in Seth's redemptive line, the, the Hebrew women from the line of Seth, to be uh, attractive and uh, they pursued them, and with them came great pagan corruption. And then the third theory is, is similar to that second one, and that's that the sons of God uh, in our text refer uh, to those men who were walking uh, with the Lord, believers in God, descended from Seth, uh, who found their, their eyes drawn to, to pagan women and took them as their wives. Uh, now, in this theory, the, the Nephilim that are mentioned are violent foreigners wreaking havoc uh, at the same time, corrupting, uh, bringing corruption and moral decline among the people. And, and there are some other theories out there. Uh, those are sort of the main three, and all of them have their strengths and, and weaknesses as we allow Scripture to interpret itself, as we look elsewhere. And there are some New Testament verses that, that are sort of adjacent to this passage that inform it. Uh, to be honest, when, when we uh, step back and, and take a look, uh, one, of the, one of the strongest theories biblically is the angel theory. Uh, when, we, when we look at other passages of scripture. Uh, most theologians uh, from the Reformation era, for example, uh, guys like Luther and Calvin, held the position that the sons of God that are mentioned are those descendants of Seth, uh, who intermarried with pagan wives from the line of Cain. Uh, but what we discover is that at the end of the day, it's more of a matter of interest uh, or intrigue uh, than it is a matter of significance. Because any of those three routes that you take, uh, the, the, they arrive at the same place in Genesis chapter 6 that the corruption of the human race uh, was profound and far-reaching, that it had found its way into the line, into the redemptive line of Seth through whom God was going to redeem the world. Uh, we see this corruption emphasized in verses 11 and 12. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned that you'll often see in the Old Testament, especially uh, a threefold repetition it's sort of this, this literary device that's used to, to really strongly emphasize something. And, and we see this in verses 11 and 12. The earth, it says the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Uh, verse 12, God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. All humanity, even the line of Seth through whom God was was planning to send the Redeemer, was spoiled, was, was ruined, was perverted, was corrupted. The second word that we see when we sort of look into the mirror of this text is the word depravity. Now, now granted, the word depravity itself doesn't show up in our text, but, but for many, it's the first word that comes to mind when you see God's description uh, of humanity in verse 5. Look at, look at verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. 
Think about how stunning that is. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That's God's assessment of humanity. Another translation, I think, helpfully says, every intent of the human heart was evil continually. Depravity doesn't mean that human beings can never do good things. That's not what the scriptures teach. It means that even our best is tainted by sin. Even our our best actions have some self-serving purpose. Even our purest motives are riddled with some degree of self-worship and self-promotion. It means that we as human beings can never operate free from the power of sin. That our very will and nature is bound to sin. That we are, uh, as the reformers taught, we are curved in upon ourselves. Our sinful nature doesn't only mean that we commit individual sins, but that our will, our mind, our heart are, are, are so corrupt that we will never actually choose God or choose good on our own. And that brings us to the third word that we see in our text, and that's the word regret. Look at verse 6. It's a powerful verse. It says, The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. That word regretted could be translated as repented. The Lord repented of the fact that he created human beings. God saw the fallout of sin, the mess that humanity had created for themselves, and he experienced deep sorrow. He he was deeply troubled. He regretted that he had ever created us in the first place. Now, Now, we have to sort of call a time out there and be reminded of the fact that God isn't like us. He isn't just responding to events as they come up. And so this idea of regret is what we call accommodated language. We talked about this in the first couple chapters of this series in Genesis, our first couple uh, weeks of this series in Genesis. This idea of accommodated language. Anytime we see the mind or the heart or the will of God expressed in scripture it's in language that's revealing to us human beings something we could never actually grasp or understand god doesn't regret his creation in the sense that you might regret a decision that you made because you couldn't foresee the fallout or the consequences of that decision that's not the sense in which god regrets his decision God can foresee everything. God knows all and sees all. And so God's regret is nothing like our human regret. It's an attempt at expressing the depth of God's pain because of sin in human language. God is, we might say, deeply grieved, heartbroken over what has happened to his creation. And so that brings us to our fourth word today, and that's the word 
that describes God's response. The fourth, fourth word is wrath. Verse 7 of our text says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then verses 12 and 13, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. One thing that's worth pointing out here is that the word corrupt that shows up in our English translations uh, to describe uh, humanity, uh, it's used in verse 12 in our text. It's also the same exact word that we find translated as destroy in verse 13. It's, it's sort of a play on words that doesn't translate into English very well. Uh, the humanity that allowed sin to destroy the earth would now be destroyed by God. There have been so many attempts uh, to make God more cuddly, more approachable more culturally acceptable. And many of those attempts uh, attempt to do that by, by not talking about the wrath of God. But it's important that we understand what we mean by the wrath of God, the destruction of God. God's wrath, destruction of sin, is the only just and proper remedy and response to sin. Think about that. You don't respond to cancer by crumpling up the doctor's report and pretending like everything's fine. If your house is on fire, you don't get out the marshmallows and call the neighbors and make s'mores, right? Destruction of sin is the only true remedy. Cutting out that which is wrong, tackling the threat, is the only just and true remedy to sin. And so that is, that is how we understand God's wrath. God is not uh, wrathful because he enjoys wrath. God destroys, as he says. God confronts sin and deals with it because it's the only just and right and proper response to the presence of sin. Uh, but I will say this, that I, I will say that Christians need to be cautious when they throw around the word wrath. So often Christians talk about God's wrath uh, as uh, something very specifically confronting a very specific group of moral sins. We always talk about God's wrath in terms of those sins that we personally don't struggle with. Or, or in terms of the people that we don't particularly like. We're always careful when we talk about something as weighty as God's judgment, God's wrath. The, the only true response to the words in our text, the only true response to this judgment handed down by the Lord in our text, is for all who hear it to 
to kneel at the cross and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The repentant sinner never cheers for the wrath of God to be poured out on someone else. Why? Because we know that we deserve that same wrath. And that brings me to the one final word that I want to point out today. It's a word that can easily be lost in the weight and the gravity of this passage. This certainly is not a cheerful passage. The human condition is not cheerful. Sin and all that's resulted uh, from it is not cheerful. The avalanche of sin from that first rebellion in the garden to, to total depravity is not cheerful. But, but we, can, we, can, we, we can't miss these powerful words that God sprinkles in along the way to remind us that there's hope. To remind us that he is always at work, that he is always moving, that he's always redeeming. And so the final word that I want to share with you today is the word favor. Look at verse 8 of our passage. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The order of this passage is important here. In verse 9, we're going to read that, that Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, that he walked faithfully with God. And, and so we, we might be tempted, it might be our nature, uh, to, to believe that Noah found favor with God because he was righteous, because he was blameless, because he walked with God. But of course, when we stop and we think about that, and we think about the nature of our humanity and, and our sinfulness. We know that human beings cannot find favor with God by being good enough. Our sin is simply too great. We must follow the order that scripture gives us. That, that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And flowing out of that Favor was the fact that he was righteous, blameless, walking faithfully with God. Noah's favor with God was the source of all of the rest. If you were reading a, a King James translation this morning, it, it would say something interesting. It would say, not that Noah found favor, but that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, the word favor is, is a more accurate translation there. But I want you to think for a moment about what the King James is trying to say with that word grace. What is grace? Grace is often referred to as God's unmerited favor to us in Christ. God's mercy and favor that comes to us as a gift undeserved by faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's fair to say that, that Noah encountered the grace of God, the favor of God. If we've learned anything about the first six chapters of Genesis, it's that humanity would never be righteous and blameless and would never walk faithfully with the Lord apart from God's intervention, apart from the grace of God, apart from God rescuing Apart from God showing mercy and unmerited favor. 
Hebrews 11 confirms this reading. Hebrews 11 tells us that Noah lived by faith. Noah's trust was in the promise of God. The promise of the Lord Jesus Christ who would pay for his sin. And we'll hear about Noah's sin in just a couple of weeks. Be ready. If you've, if you've read uh, Genesis, you know what I'm talking about. Noah is not a perfect man. Certainly Noah wouldn't have articulated it this way. He, but, but nonetheless, he was believing in the promise of God. In the promise given in the garden that one day God would destroy the evil one and redeem his creation. That, that faith in the promise of God, that encounter with the grace and the favor of God, was the foundation of Noah's life and his faith, and it's the foundation of ours as well. We are only ever righteous and blameless based upon our faith in another. You only walk with God because of the merits of another. We have found favor with God, not because of what we could ever do, but because of what was done for us in our place. There, there is much to grieve as we look at our world, how sin has destroyed it and continues to destroy it. We grieve over the corruption, over the depravity of our world, and yet at the same time we rejoice because God so loved the world, that he sent his son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not be destroyed, but will have eternal life. We rejoice because Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save the world, to secure the favor of God for you and for me. We rejoice today. I, I rejoice today because I, of all people, have found favor with God, not based on my merit. You, of all people, have found favor with God, and it's only by faith. If we ever forget that our favor with God is only by his grace through faith, we have forgotten the gospel. And if that ever turns into pride in our hearts, we have forgotten the gospel. You were, scripture says, lost and dead in your sin. You were corrupt, depraved, And the gospel of Jesus Christ found you. The favor of God found you. Sought you out. Set you free. And so for the Christian, there is this sense of, we are in a sense conflicted or solemn as we rejoice. We rejoice because God's favor found us, but we are solemn, we are conflicted because there are so many trapped in their sin who need to be set free. The Bible doesn't end with human corruption or depravity. That's the good news. Genesis 6 is not the end of the story. The Bible doesn't end with 
God's regret over making humanity. It doesn't end with his wrath being poured out. The Bible ends with the favor of God fully realized. A new heaven, a new earth where death and sadness and corruption and depravity are no more. They are wiped away. And so we repent and believe the gospel. We repent of our own corruption, our own depravity. And we believe the good news that God loves us, that Jesus died for us in spite of us. And when you do, when you believe, God declares that what is said of Noah in verse 9 is also true of you. You are righteous. You are blameless. You are walking faithfully with God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we confess that when we look into the mirror of your word, we do see corruption. And as much as we don't like to admit it, we see the effects of depravity. Not just in our world, but in our own lives, in our own hearts, in our own families. So God, we're grateful that when that word of law confronts us, that your gospel is there to remind us that, that what we lack, you provide. That you invite us to come with our corruption and our depravity and you offer us righteousness and blamelessness and faithfulness. God, we thank you for the righteous, blameless, faithful Savior who lived as we never could, who died the death that we deserve. God, give us faith today to believe in your grace that can only ever be received, never earned. And we thank you that you give this gift of grace freely. So help us today to rest in your favor, in the promise of your favor, even though it'll never make sense in our minds. And move in us a restlessness for those who haven't yet tasted of your goodness, of your grace, of your favor. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, the true, righteous, blameless, and faithful one. Amen.